Good morning, everybody. This is Stephen Davis at Feet for Thoughts. It is Wednesday, the 19th of July, and today I'm going to be talking about six books that changed my theology. So stay tuned. Good morning and welcome to Feet for Thoughts, taking every thought captive to Christ. My name is Stephen Davis and it is Wednesday the 19th of July. Uh, follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Feet for Thoughts. That is Feet for Thoughts on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, if you are liking the content, uh, please share. Uh, if you're listening on Anchor, the lines are open. Feel free to call in and leave your comments. Um, otherwise, give those claps if you're liking what you hear. If you're listening via podcast, uh, thank you very much for listening via podcast. You are the true MVP. But I highly recommend that you download the Anchor app. It's available on iOS and Android. And you can actually call in and interact with the show. You can leave your comments. You can give some feedback, um, whatever you like to do. So by all means, go to the uh, Apple Store or go to Google Play and download the Android app. But today I wanted to take some time to talk about six books that changed my theology. Um, that is maybe a bit similar to the um, you know six books that I recommended before. Last time we talked about six books that changed the way that I read scripture. That was more so about how I study scripture and how I read the Bible. But this one is actually, I want to talk about books that actually changed my theological view. So before I read this book, I may have believed X. And after I read that book, I now believe Y. So um, that's what I wanted to talk about today. Now, there is some crossover in terms of some of the books. So one or two of the books I will have mentioned previously in um, the last broadcast I did on six books that changed the way I read scripture. Um, but, you know, that's that's just the way it is. But, you know, the rest of it uh, should be new to you. Uh, so let's get stuck in straight away. So the first book on the list is one that I mentioned previously, The False Prophet by Ellis E. Schofield. Um, and the reason why this book changed my theology is basically because it changed my eschatology. So it changed my views on the end times. Um, before I read this book, I was what you would call a premillennial dispensationalist. So I believed in the rapture of the church. I believed in the seven year tribulation. I believed that the Antichrist was going to come. He was going to take over the world, reign for three and a half years, then give everyone the mark of the beast, sit in the temple of God and all that stuff. And then after you know three and a half more years, Jesus would come back, destroy him and everything would be cushy and we would have an, a thousand year reign on the earth. And, you know, that would be that. Um, now, before I read this book from when I was young, I questioned that view a lot. And the reason why I questioned that view is because I would pick up my Bible. I'd open the book of Revelation. I would read through it. If, like Previously, I mentioned the book of Revelation was probably before I gave my life to Christ. 
or I should say before Christ saved me, um, the book of Revelation was probably the only book of the Bible that I read other than the book of Proverbs. And so I would sit down and I would read this book. And the thing that I would notice um, is that what everyone was telling me was happening in the end times. I just couldn't actually find it in the book of Revelation. And even when I looked up the passages about the Antichrist, what I found there didn't match what everyone was telling me. Um, was going to happen in the end time. So I started to question, like, like really, like, is, is what I've been taught, is what I've been told, what the Bible actually says. So when I came across The False Prophet by Ellis E. Schofield, that just blew my mind because now all of a sudden everything made sense and I realized that I don't actually have to hold or keep those views anymore. So I went from being a premillennial dispensationalist um, to basically being an amillennialist. Um, so I no longer believed in a secret rapture of the church before the Great Tribulation. Um, I no longer believed um, that the Tribulation would only last seven years. I no longer believed even that the Antichrist was a single individual who would be Satan incarnate. I no longer believed that the mark of the beast was going to be something like a microchip or the fingerprint reader on your iPhone or a tattoo or anything like that. So it completely changed my view of eschatology um, and it changed the way I viewed the uh, millennial reign. So I no longer saw the millennial reign as only a thousand year reign that would take place after the tribulation. I saw it as something completely different and I'll go into details about that another time. Um, and it also solidified in my view that the founding of the state of Israel in 1948 and the Six Day War of 1967 were fulfillments of biblical prophecy. Um, I know some people don't agree with that. I know some people question whether those people who call themselves the Jews are genuinely the Jews. I personally have no reason to doubt that they are. And I also have no reason to doubt that biblically you can find justification for those two events being um fulfillments of biblical prophecy. Now I must state here that that does not mean that the nation of Israel is full of people who are faithful to Yahweh, number one. Number two, that doesn't mean that everything that the nation of Israel does should be sanctioned or agreed with. Number three, it doesn't mean that the church should necessarily be pouring loads of money into the nation. I don't think we should be cursing them, but I don't think we should be going out of our means to bless them above every, any other nation on the earth either. They're up, they are a nation that needs to be evangelized just as every nation on the earth needs to be evangelized. So we need to be balanced in how we look at that. But that's The False Prophet by Ellis E. Schofield. Uh, you spell his last, last name S-K-A-S-K-O-L-F-I-E-L-D, uh, -E um, Ellis E. Schofield. Um, the next book um, is by an author who did uh, crop up in the last broadcast. Um, it's, an, it's a book by David Pawson. And this book is called Is John 316 the gospel so just to read the blurb on the back uh this is david Paul himself writing john 3 16 is often referred to as the gospel in a nutshell i believe it is one of the most mistranslated and misapplied verses in the bible like most christians i totally misunderstood the verse so i am warning you now that i may spoil john 3 16 for you for the rest of your life but I hope that this book will also give you the true meaning of what is a wonderful message and a very important one, especially 
for Christians. So just from that, you get an idea of what he's talking about. But why this changed my theology is that it changed my perception of the good news, number one. Um, but more importantly, it awakened me to the idea that God doesn't love everybody in the same way. Um, what John 3.16 is really talking about is that at a particular time in history, God demonstrated his love to the world. Um, but he did that in a very specific way. It wasn't a statement about the um, depth of which God loves the world. Like what we tend to do is we read John 3.16 and we read it as God so loved the world. Like he loved the world so much that he gave his son. When really when you look at it in the Greek, what the what the passage is saying is in this way. Like thus so God loved the world and the only way you can really understand what that means is what david paulson goes on to talk about by highlighting the fact that we know john three sixteen, but how many of us do know john three fifteen or 14 to 15 which give us the context for what is actually being spoken of and what john uh, what john does because it's john speaking here not jesus um is he calls back to numbers 21 4 to 9 and the uh, the incident of the brazen serpent. And you know what? Whilst we're here, I'll read it because it's not too long of a passage. Verses 4 to 9 of Numbers 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no war and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And this provides the context for understanding John 3.16. Because what does he say from John 3.14? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Um, so it brought me to understand that um, the whole point of what's being said in John 3.16 is just like what God did with Moses and the Israelites back in Numbers 21, 4 to 9 is what he did with Jesus. So, you know, as a result of their grumbling against God, he sent punishment upon them. He sent judgment upon them in the form of these snakes. And if you were bitten by the snake, all you had to do was go and look to this bronze serpent held up on this pole in faith putting your trust that what god said like that the fact that god said you will be healed if you trust in it if you look towards this thing if you trust my words you will be healed and you will be saved and it's the same concept with jesus jesus is lifted up on a pole and if we look to him and believe what has been spoken about him and who he is we will be saved but the greater point of the book is just showing how god's love is particular for his people and that he doesn't just have this um general um 
love for everybody that isn't you know there, there aren't no divisions in it there isn't anything specific about it it's just very general um but it showed that uh jesus spoke about the love of god primarily to his disciples so yes there is the love of god but he didn't just go around proclaiming the love of god to everyone who would hear it um he spoke specifically to his disciples and what the book highlighted is the fact that, you know, and it's, this isn't reflected in every translation, but there are translations that note that Jesus's words actually end at John 3, 15. And what follows from John 16 to John 21, John 3, 16 to John 3, 21 are actually the words of the writer, the words of John. So he's explaining in greater depth what Jesus actually meant. So the point of that being, John's the one talking about the love of God. Jesus wasn't the one talking about the love of God. He spoke about the father's love to the 12 and to his inner circle. But when he spoke to people outside, the message that he was bringing wasn't God loves you so much is basically what was being said. There's more to the book than that, but that's just to give you an overview. Um, and it just shows that John 3.16 is not really an evangelistic verse. And really the book of John is an, is an evangelistic book. It's really one of the worst books to give to someone who doesn't know much about scripture because John says that he wrote this book so that you may continue to believe in what you've heard. Um, he wrote it to people who had already been in the faith for a while. And this was basically an encouragement to keep on going. Like, yeah, what you've heard is true. Keep going, keep believing what you've heard. And that's really why he wrote the book of John. So when we take the book of John and we take John 3.16 and we make that one verse, the gospel in a nutshell, in many ways, we're missing a lot. You know, we're not really presenting the gospel in a nutshell. And it's not that we're giving people a false perception of who God is, but we're not really giving a truly balanced picture. So the next book on my list is a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn uh, to give you the blurb. Have you ever wondered what is heaven really going to be like? What will we look like? What will we do? We all have questions about what heaven will be like. And after 25 years of extensive research, Dr. Randy Alcorn provides the answers. In the most comprehensive and definitive book on heaven to date, Randy invites you to picture heaven the way scripture describes it. A bright, vibrant and physical new earth, free from sin, suffering and death and bringing, brimming with Christ's presence, wondrous natural beauty and the richness of human culture as God intended it. This is a book about real people with real bodies enjoying close relationships with God and each other, eating, drinking, working, playing, traveling, worshipping and discovering on a new earth. Eat earth as God created it, earth as he intended it to be. Um, so just from that, you get a sense of the book on why this book changed my theology. It showed me that heaven wouldn't just be some disembodied experience. Neither would it be a 24 hour praise and worship show. Um, so it changed the way um, I thought about the New Jerusalem um, as the city itself, not as, you know, a weird kind of cube, but actually more like a cosmic mountain um, because if you look in scripture and you look throughout scripture god's dwelling place his abode where the new jerusalem would be is actually described as a mountain you know mount zion the mount of assembly the heights of the north mount zaphon all of these phrases are used to describe god's abode as a you know as this city on a mountain with a garden you know all of those things coming together but more so than that the book as you you know heard from the blurb really showed that you know heaven wouldn't just be a place in the clouds heaven was actually going to come down to the earth 
in the new creation um, and that it would be a place where we would eat, we would drink, we would work, we would play, we would travel, worship and we would make discoveries, we would do new creative things. Um, I'd love to take you through, you know, just kind of the the, the contents of the book, but, you know, it's a long book. Um, it's about, let me see, it comes in at just under, no, just over 500 pages. So it's a long book. I've actually been meaning to go back and read through the book again for many years, but I just haven't gotten around to it. But yeah, it, it really changed completely my theology on what heaven was going to be like, what the new creation was going to be like, um, and really ingrained in me the fact that we are actually going to rule with Christ in heaven, which came to play a vital role in the later aspects of my theology and doctrine that I adopted. So that's Heaven by Randy Alcorn, A-L-C-O-R-N, Randy Alcorn. Excuse me, the next book on the list uh, isn't actually a book I would still recommend for anyone to read, um, but it's a book called In the Beginning, Compelling Evidence for Creation and the Flood by a man named Walt Brown. And the reason I wouldn't recommend the book is because I no longer subscribe to his um, framework for this stuff. I more so flock with what Answers in Genesis say, what the um, what ICR say, the Institute for Creation Research. I'm more on that side of the debate. Um, but this was my first introduction to young earth creationism. Um, so in his book, he puts forth this theory called the hydroplate theory, which is basically that there was a subterranean reservoir of water beneath the earth's crust. Um, and it was kind of kept in place. Um, and at some point, uh, I believe he, he believes it was either called maybe a meteor strike or something. I can't remember exactly what he said the initial mechanism was, but that, you know, this water was kept under great pressure because it had all this, you know, miles of crust on top of it. So that kept this pressurized reservoir of water and that cracked open. And basically this was the fountains of the great deep that these great jets of water shot up into the sky and caused uh, great rainfall to come upon the earth and that's what flooded the earth. The view I now take is actually called catastrophic plate tectonics and if you want to know more about that I suggest you go to answersingenesis.org and type in the search catastrophic plate tectonics and that will give you an idea of the position that I now take but it gave me good and valid reasons to question uniformitarianism. So the idea that the present is the key to the past. So how things occur today is exactly how they have always occurred. So the rate at which the continents move away from each other is the rate that they've always moved. The, you know, the, the, um, yeah, the, the way that, you know, sedimentary layers are laid down, the rate at which that happens is the way that it's always happened. It really um, showed that no catastrophe, like global catastrophe, could actually explain the geological record, the fossil record, the ice age, um, evolution, like, you know, counter evolutionary theory and counter the Big Bang model. So it really laid open my eyes to young earth creationism and that showed me that I no longer needed to try and marry those theories to scripture. I no longer needed to try and fit evolution into scripture or the Big Bang model into scripture. There was actually a way of looking at history, at archaeology, at science, at geography through a biblical worldview and that there were Christians who were working in the sciences, working in these fields, who were providing alternative theories and those alternative theories 
had validity. Um, now, most of my more, I guess, grounding in young earth creationism, as I said, came from following the ministry of answers in Genesis. But this book was the book that introduced me to the concept, hence why I mention it here. But it also was important in paving the way for me to abandon what was called the day age view of Genesis 1, 1 to 2. And in short, um, it's also called the um, sorry, not the day age view. No, forgive me. Um, what I, the view that I used to hold was what's was called the gap theory. Um, and the gap theory was that between Genesis one and Genesis, uh, between Genesis one, verse one and verse two, there was a gap. And that in that gap, you could fit millions of years. You could fit dinosaurs. You could fit all of that stuff, all the geological record is the whole thing about Lucifer's flood, the pre-Adamic race and all that stuff. So I used to hold to that view. I used to believe that. But this book opened the doorway to me abandoning that view. Again, it was actually an article by Answers in Genesis that really put the nail in the coffin for that view for me. But um, as I said, this was kind of the starting point that led me on that journey to eventually change my theology in those areas as well. So it changed my whole theology on the book of Genesis. Um, the next book is a book called 12 What Abouts by John Sampson. Excuse me. And um, this book, before I read this book, I had recently come across a term called tulip. And I had no idea what tulip was. Up until that point, I thought tulips were flowers. Um, but it was actually through watching one of the chopping blocks by Lamp Mode Recordings, one of their videos on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube, put in chopping blocks and tulip, and you'll probably find the video I'm talking about. So it was artists from Lamp Mode Recordings, and they were talking about the doctrines of grace, um, what some people may refer to as Calvinism or Reformed theology. So tulip is an acronym. It stands for total depravity, um, unconditional grace, limited atonement, um, sorry, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. So I had no idea what this was. Um, but once I watched that video and I started to, I was listening to a lot of uh, James White at the time. So he would talk about these things as well. I didn't get it, but I had questions and I'd heard things about it. Um, but then I think John Sampson uh, did a show on James White's podcast and he talked about his book. So I went and got the book. And all of the questions that I had about Reformed theology, this book pretty much answered. So all the scriptures I would have brought up to counter it, because I didn't realize I was an Arminian at the time. You know, I just read the Bible as I read the Bible. Um, but all the questions that I had, all the counters that I had, the book pretty much answered every question I had about the doctrines of grace. And, it, you know, it convinced me. So the book led me to adopt Reformed theology. And this primarily changed the way that I viewed salvation, the way that I view predestination and election, um, the sinfulness of man and all that sort of thing. Um, now, my views have since still evolved from then. Um, I wouldn't nowadays refer, refer to myself as reformed. I don't really want to associate myself with the reformed camp. I definitely would not call myself a Calvinist. Um, but I do still hold to the doctrines of grace. It's just... Uh, I guess how I put it is the culture around the reform theology is not what I adopt, but I do believe that the general teaching is biblical. My views on the total depravity of man have shifted slightly. Again, not something I can go into now, but pretty much the rest of it I still hold to. But yeah, so that was the book that, you know, changed my theology on salvation. Um, 
The next book is called What's So Great About the Doctrines of Grace and it's by a man called Richard D. Uh, D. Phillips. Um, and again, it was on the doctrines of grace. So it was on, you know, along the same subject about, you know, tulip and all of that stuff, reform theology. Um, but what it was about this book was actually primarily one chapter. And it was a chapter um, on the sovereignty of God. And even though like it's, it's actually a short book, it's, it's really not that long at all. Um, but I tended to only to really go back and read this one chapter over and over and over again because it had such um, an impact on me um so i'm just trying to find the book because i got this one on my ipad so i'm just trying to bring up the uh table of contents yeah so the first chapter of the book was what's so great about the sovereignty of god um and for me understanding the sovereignty of god was almost like going through the born again experience again because i just realized how much of a hat you know how much of god's hand had been on my life and it really opened up my mind to the sovereignty of god and it's something that i couldn't drop and it's something i haven't dropped i definitely hold to the sovereignty of god in all things and there's for some people that makes people uncomfortable because of other connotations but it had such an impact on me that it impacted how i saw all theology it really just burnt that doctrine was burnt onto my heart. It's something I cannot now deny. And it filters down to everything else. Um, one thing that James White would always say was that he believed that you should actually add an S in front of stu in front of tulip and actually call it stulip because he believes believed that the rest of them actually flow from the sovereignty of God. So you start with the sovereignty of God and everything else kind of flows from it. Um, now, I, you know, I do believe that all theology does flow from the sovereignty of God. And I think that if you abandon the sovereignty of God or question the sovereignty of God, that all of scripture really does, it just doesn't cohere and hold together as well. And when you think about it, what actually happened in the garden was God's sovereignty being challenged. That was really what started us all on this roller coaster that we're now on today. Um, but it changed the way not only that I saw salvation and predestination and election and all of those things, but even how spiritual gifts work. So I come from a Pentecostal background. Um, I still hold to the continuance of spiritual gifts. So again, this is another reason why I wouldn't be counted as a Calvinist or as reformed because generally they are cessationists by and large. Um, but no, I, you know, I used to adopt the term charisma, uh, reformed charismatic, but I, you know, I don't, I don't need these labels. We don't need these labels. So it's not something I go around saying now I, you know, I try to take the Bible case by case. Um, but yeah, so it, you know, the idea of God's sovereignty, the doctrine of God's sovereignty affected how I saw spiritual gifts and how they work. I no longer see spiritual gifts as innate abilities that you have. As 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, the spirit apportions the gifts as he wills. So it really just opened my eyes to see God's sovereignty throughout scripture everywhere. And that ultimately changed all of my theology. And it's actually a big driving force behind the book that I'm writing um, the book that I'm writing now, I'm almost finished by the grace of God. I'm going to be finished this year. Um, but the book is called The Kingdom, The Body, The Bride and The Tabernacle. And in many ways, it is actually um, an ode to the sovereignty of God. So the sovereignty of God really underlies the book and is really unpacked in the book in many ways. So uh, stay tuned. I will be talking more about it in future broadcasts, but just wanted to throw that out there. So those are the six books. 
that changed my theology. But I'm not finished. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually had some honorable mentions as well. Now, they're honorable mentions because they're not books that actually changed my theology. More so, um, they're books that my theology had already started to change from my own study. And these are books that really affirmed and confirmed conclusions that I'd already come to. Um, so again, one of these was mentioned on the previous broadcast about um, books that change the way I view scripture. And that's The Unseen Realm by Michael S. Heiser. Um, again, as I said before, I'd come across his content via YouTube back in 2012. Uh, started vi regularly visiting his website, follow his, his uh, podcast. It's called The Naked Bible Podcast. Highly recommend that you jump on and listen to it. Um, but yeah, so I was very much familiar with his content already. And it dovetailed with stuff that I excuse me, had already been thinking. So, for example, looking at Daniel chapter 10 and amusing over what the Prince of Persia was, what the Prince of Greece was, that these were actually spiritual beings that ruled over nations. Um, looking at Genesis 6 and the sons of God coming down to earth and dwelling with human women and producing the Nephilim. And my conclusion that, you know, demons would must have come from the disembodied spirits of dead Nephilim. So the, his content really confirmed and enriched in a very big way um you know what i'd already come to um and definitely if if you google his he did a series on the trinity on, in the old testament you need to go and watch that series because it lays out how you can argue the trinity or 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 teach the trinity from the Old Testament, like, you know, it just builds the case from there. There are many typical texts that we'll go to that aren't necessarily the strongest ones, but he really laid out, you know, how the doctrine of the Trinity actually has Old Testament biblical roots and how uh, Jews actually believed in a binatarian Godhead. So a two person Godhead up until the second century. And the only reason they abandoned it was because people were teaching that the second person of what was called the two powers in heaven was Jesus. So Jews up until that time believed that there were two Yahwehs, one invisible, one visible. The visible Yahweh was what you find in your Old Testament was the um, angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, who you know spoke as Yahweh, acted as Yahweh, was worshiped as Yahweh, who Yahweh said, I am in him. My name is in him. My presence is in him. Um, so Christians were saying, yeah, that was Jesus. <laughs> like that was the pre-incarnate Christ. So because of that, the rabbis outlawed the doctrine of the two powers in heaven. Up until that point, they believed that there were two persons in the Godhead. Um, so, yeah, so that was the unseen realm. Um, and obviously all of that stuff really changed a lot of my theology and you know, the book is really just a compilation of everything that I learned from Michael Heiser. So uh, when it came to reading the book, there wasn't really much in it that was new for me. But for anyone who is completely unfamiliar with his content, pick up the Unseen Realm. You will never be able to look at your Bible the same way again. It had such an impact on me that it completely changed the way that I started writing my own book because I realized, you know what, like all of this stuff is weaved into everything I wanted to talk about in my book. So when you come to read my book, you will find that um, a lot of the content in that book I've picked up from his work. Um, a lot of his stuff about the divine council, because you realize that it is it, it permeates the whole of scripture from Old Testament to the New Testament. But I'm probably saying stuff that you may not 
know what I'm talking about. So go to his website, drmsh.com, uh, subscribe to his podcast, The Naked, po- uh, the Naked Bible uh, podcast, and by all means, pick up his book. Highly recommend it. The next book on my honorable mentions list is a book by N.T. Wright, and it's called The Day the Revolution Began. Um, this is a more recent book. In fact, I haven't actually finished reading it. <laughs> that's, that's how recent it is. So I'm still reading it now. I'm kind of reading it a bit slowly, but um, I was put into this book because of an interview that Michael Heiser did with N.T. Wright. And listening to the interview, I actually realized, hold on, like, these are things that I, I agree with. Like, just what he was talking about, I was just like, oh, my days, that's it. Like, that's what I've been... Like, that's what I've been talking about. That's what I've been thinking. That's These are the conclusions I've been coming to in the Bible. So... Um, so yeah, his book really just laid out in in greater detail what I had already started to conclude and had some really amazing insights into re- like what the cross, what Jesus was doing on the cross, what it was doing, that it was actually starting a revolution, that what Jesus did on the cross changed the world, changed all creation, changed everything forever. The way the world was before the cross is not the way the world is now things worked differently before the cross both in heaven and on earth and he really just goes into what that means the the significance of it um and really emphasizing that the good news of the kingdom the gospel is not about jesus dying on the cross the gospel is about the kingdom of god and it's about defeating the kingdom of darkness defeating the enemies of god and setting god's people free from captivity but the cross is the means through which that happens um so that book really just kind of brought all of what i've been thinking together and you know to hear it or to see it coming from someone who was an academic who was very respected in the field I guess gave me confidence that okay, I'm not completely going off the deep end in what I'm, you know, in the conclusions that I'm coming to. So that's the day the revolution began by N.T. Wright. Do pick it up, great book. Um, the final book is a book by Frank Viola called Pagan Christianity, um, and this book really affirmed a lot of the suspicions I had about the way we do church. I've been, um, I guess questioning for a long time why we do things the way we do things um and it's it's been a, a it's been a journey for me it's been, it's been a process of you know a lot of study a lot of thought a lot of thinking but i've always had this i've always questioned in my mind the way we do things so from my earliest days in my youth it was questioning well why do i need to wear a suit and a tie to church like you know why does God care about whether I'm wearing a suit or tie or not? Um, you know, why do we call the front of the church the altar? You know, like, why do we take tithes and offerings? So all these questions I started to ask, why do we meet in buildings when the New Testament doesn't really seem to put that emphasis? So in Pagan Christianity, Frank Viola breaks all of this down and he shows how pretty much all of the church practices that we use today have their root in paganism or specifically in roman paganism so church buildings were based on roman basilicas um the separation between clergy and laity again was based on um the way that romans did things the the order of service liturgy was based on how um romans did things in their you know in their kind of civil courts and and what have you so he really just breaks down and shows how so many of the practices that we have today don't comport with what the new testament pattern actually shows us and were actually um 
you know adopted from pagan practices so um if john if you know the book by david pawson would change the way you see john 316 pagan christianity would change the way you see church on sunday um but again it was dovetailing with many of the conclusions that i had already come to biblically so it just again affirmed many of my suspicions and it's an area i'm still studying but ultimately for me i want to get back to god's blueprint god's pattern for how we're meant to do this thing called christianity and so this book was another stepping stone towards me answering that question and it's a question i'm still exploring and ultimately it's a question that i will aim to see answered in the book that i'm writing but that is all of the books that i wanted to talk about today so six books that changed my theology and three honorable mentions that also um, had an impact on my theology one way or another so that brings us to the end of the show if you have enjoyed this broadcast if you have enjoyed the content do call in let me know give those claps again if you are listening by, via podcast i highly recommend that you download the anchor app so that you can interact with the channel directly um as i mentioned in future broadcasts i do want to actually talk a bit more about the book that i'm writing and um how you can also uh, get involved in helping me to uh, actually get the funding that i need to publish it i am aiming to self-publish it um and that requires funds so uh, i do aim to talk about that in the future and give you a bit more background um, about the book itself um but otherwise thank you again for listening to feet for thoughts uh follow me on twitter and on instagram at feet for thoughts that's feet for thoughts on instagram and on twitter otherwise i wish you a good day grace and peace to you and i pray that this broadcast has been edifying feed for thoughts what's up man just want to say that uh i love the content man i love the material everything that you're saying is super dope as always and on point um it's funny because one of the most influential books in my life so far the unseen realm is only your honorable mention <laughs> so i'm looking forward to um these other books that you've been talking about man and going to be looking forward to seeing so much more from you bro god bless you man and keep it up hey malik thanks for your calling um yeah um unseen realm is there on the honorable mentions not because it hasn't been influential but like i said it's it's mainly because i was already highly influenced by michael heiser's teaching and content before i read the book so by the time i came to the book it was kind of like yeah i know all this already so it wasn't at the book itself wasn't what impacted me it's, it's the content of the book that impacted me but i you know came across the content before the book was even published so um yeah so that's why it's only an honorable mentions but in terms of the content itself definitely it may even be um it it may even be at the top of the list. If I was to say the most influential books in terms of my theology, it would maybe be number one or number two in terms of uh, the, the amount of impact that content has had on my theology. It's been huge. I can't even begin to state. It's like I can't look at the Bible and not see the divine counsel somewhere. So, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's had an, it's had a huge impact. But yeah, I appreciate your calling. Um, thanks for listening. And God bless.